Well, good morning again. It's good to be able to uh, bring the Word of God to you this morning from the book of Ephesians. It's been a while since we um, entered into Ephesians. And so this morning, as we continue our journey on Ephesians, we're coming to chapter 5. And, uh, and this is a loaded chapter, right? As you, we have just read, <laughs> there's a lot going on in here. And I hope to be able to talk about all of it as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, it is a loaded passage. It's filled with a lot of things that may be uncomfortable for some of you, but you know, I hope that, that it will be good for you. So let me just pray. Holy Father, I pray, Lord, as we dive into Ephesians chapter 5, I just pray for, for your wisdom as we look into your word. I pray that you'd help us as a body of believers to be able to respond to your word. And I pray to even for those who are seeking who are seekers, who are still undecided, who, who have walked away from their faith perhaps. And I just pray, Lord, too, that you would bring them to you uh, through your word. Pray for your spirit to work in our hearts this morning, whether it's teaching us, whether it's guiding us, whether it's comforting us, or whether it's convicting us. I pray for your spirit to live in us and work in us, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's fascinating to see the growth of children. You know, I have two boys, and it's fascinating to see them growing up as they learn to speak. Now, you know, as I don't know if you realize this, but you know, there are certain words that you don't have to teach them; then they naturally know how to say it, right? I'm thinking about words like "no," right? You don't have to teach them that; they know how to say that. You know, as they grow, as they hear, as they imitate you, you know, they know how to say no. Do you know what is perhaps the second most favorite word of a child? It's why. You know, why? Why this? Why that? You know, we hear that all the time. You know, I think about myself as a parent, you know, when my kids demand for a reason, why, you know, sometimes I resort to words like, you better listen to me because I said so. Or you better listen to me because I'm your dad. No other reasons, right? And I, I use those words a lot of times to try to, you know, get out of, of a situation, try to perhaps, you know, um, get away from an uncomfortable situation. But most often, you know, I find myself using those words and realize that, you know, it doesn't really help with the situation at all. You know, children have a curious mind. They want to know why. And yet when you give them an answer, which is not really an answer, it doesn't really help them. And so instead of, of calming a situation, perhaps, you know, words that I've used have often, de- you know, have often created an a, a unwelcome situation. You know, they get frustrated, they get angry, and what happens? I get frustrated and I get angry, and it doesn't help with the situation. But if I were to take the time to calmly explain the reasons to help their curious mind in understanding why, we do certain things, why we don't do this. It helps to de-escalate the situation. It helps to make them more receptive to listening to what I have to say. And it happens all the time. But yet, a lot of times, I resort to simple answers, you know, because I'm your parent, because I'm your dad, and because I said so, because it's easier. It takes less time, right? But yet, if we take time to explain things, to sit down with them, to explain the reason why, 
it helps. And I believe this is how God treats us too a lot of times. When you think about the Bible, it's full of instructions. It's full of, of you know, all kinds of laws. But yet the Bible, as we look at it, a lot of times God gives us these instructions, but he doesn't just tell them, do it, live it, obey it. He takes time to explain, to give reasons why we should do it, why we should live our lives the way that he wants us to live. And so it's important, you know, I believe that the why question is actually an important exercise. And if you want to get to know the Bible, if you want to learn to live in the Word of God, if you want to learn to follow God, you have to ask why. Because the why is going to help you understand, it's going to deepen your knowledge. You know, this morning we, we come into a passage. We come into a passage where there's just a lot of instructions, where there's a lot of instructions, there's a lot of do this, don't do that. Live this way, don't live that way. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to instructions, sometimes, you know, we get tired by listening to so many instructions. You know, we find ourselves less receptive when, when we are being asked to do certain things and not, you know, we find ourselves rebellious perhaps sometimes because we don't want to be told what to do. We want to be able to figure things out on our own. We want to be able to choose our own decisions. And so when we think about a passage like this this morning, if we don't understand the reason behind these instructions from God, we're going to get really frustrated because for some people, you know, we may look at these instructions, we may think that these instructions as unrealistic. It's so strict. How do you expect us to live like this? And then for other people, when we look at these instructions, almost like a checklist, right? I look at all this long list of do's and don'ts, and I, you know, check it off. It's like, okay, I'm actually pretty good at this. No, I'm not good at this. You know, I need to work better on this. Oh, well, this is not a problem for me. We'll take this like a checklist. But, you know, trying to measure up to what we have done and what we still have to do. These understanding fail to recognize the very purpose of God's heart and desire for us. No, it fails to understand why he gives us these instructions. That's why when we look at a passage like this, you know, before we, we go into the how to live your life, we need to understand the why. The why, the reasons for these instructions. So there's just two simple points this morning. The reason for these instructions and the, the way to live out these instructions. Let's talk about the reason first. Paul is going to remind Ephesians Christians here, and the rest of us as we read this passage, you know, about these important instructions. Now, in order to understand this instruction, verse 8, verse 8 is the key to it. It's perhaps the most important of all the verses in this passage. It is the heart of this entire passage. What does verse 8 say? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See this? Verse 8. You know, notice that Paul did not say to the Ephesians, you were walking in darkness. Rather, he said, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You know, he's saying that you weren't just surrounded by darkness or in darkness, but darkness 
was in you. Now, you aren't just surrounded by light or in the light. No, Paul says you are the light. You are light. See the difference? It's not just about your surrounding. This is much more profound, profound than that. It's not just about change of surroundings or circumstances. It's a change of a person caused by a new birth. It's a change of an identity. You were once darkness. Now you are light. That's the difference. Previously, you know, you live in the darkness of your sin. You live without hope because you are under the wrath of God. Then by God's grace, as Paul mentioned in this great chapter, in chapter 2 in Ephesians, says that you have been saved. This is not your doing. Rather, it is God's doing that he graciously forgave you and saved you through Christ so that no one may boast. And as such, you have been made a child of God, a child of light, created for good works, that you should walk in them. So the motivation for us then is not to strive to gain the light or to seek the light, but rather to live in the light. Become who you are. That is what Paul is saying in verse 8. Become who you are. You are light. You are no longer darkness. You are light because of Christ. So become who you are. Live as light and not darkness. Let your light shine in this world because you have the power and hope to walk as light. You know, as great as these words are, sometimes we do forget. Sometimes we do struggle. Sometimes we do struggle because of our circumstances, because of the sins around us, the temptations around us. And this is where it's important for us to be reminded. You know, there's a great line from the movie, The Lion King. You know, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's a great line coming out of the movie, The Lion King. And there's this great line where Mufasa, the, the, the uh, father of Simba, I'm trying to get my characters right. Mufasa said to his son Simba in The Lion King when he ran away from fear of his uncle Scar. You remember what Mufasa said to his son? He said, remember who you are. Remember who you are. It's a great line. And it's not just, you know, cartoon characters or, or, or a lion that needs to remember that we, as Christians, have to remember that. Remember who you are every time you forget or every time you are in doubt or every time you struggle with sin and temptation. Remember who you are. Remember that you are light. Remember that you're no longer in darkness. Remember that the God of light is in you. As you think about your sin, as you think about your doubt, remember that. Remember and so Paul takes the time to tell us why. You know, when we know the why, when we understand why, who we are, then we're able to follow the directions. Then we're able to live as children of the light. Know that you are children of the light first. And then now Paul comes to tell you how to live as children of the light. 
So here, as we look at the, the way to live, Paul made it clear that because you are children of the light, darkness no longer reigns over us. Instead, we have the light of God in us to lead us to live for God. Now, how do we do that? How do we live? So this is where the plethora of instructions comes in. But I'm going to try as, as best as I can to, to help you understand as much as possible. So to live as children of the light, Paul wants us to, first of all, understand darkness and the danger it brings so that we will turn from darkness. How? How do we turn from darkness? Let's dive in deeper. To stay away from darkness, Paul uses specific commands to warn us. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the darkness around you. Be aware of your surroundings. You know, you, as Christians, we need to be aware of our surroundings. We don't live as though as, as everything is peaceful and great. We have to be aware of our surroundings because we live in a broken and sinful world. You know, you must be aware of our surroundings because sexual immorality, as Paul says, impurity, greed, and filthy speeches are all part of darkness, and they are around you, around all of us. So we have to be aware of all of these things. You know, as Christians, though you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you are not yet perfect. You are still susceptible to temptations and sin. Because as I said, you know, we live in a hostile world, surrounded by idols, surrounded by false gods, all wiving for your affections. They're all trying to, to seek you out, trying to get your attention, trying to get your affections. And so we have to be aware of our surroundings. Now Paul tells us that anyone who commits any of these sins is an idolater because it is a form of idol worship, the worship of false gods. And so here Paul tells us that sin is not just a behavioral or psychological problem. Sin is actually a worship problem, first of all. You choose to sin because you have a worship problem. You know, we see this in our society today because when we, when we, we see this in our society when we choose to celebrate and elevate abhorrent sexual practices and sexual understanding in the name of freedom. What does that tell us? You know, it tells us that essentially people are just trying to mock God by claiming to know better than Him when it comes to how we understand sexuality. So they get to define, and they get to practice as they like because this is who they want to be. This is the decision that they have come up with that, is, that they think that it's better than God, that it's far greater than what God has in mind. And so as you see here, it is a worship problem. It is worship of me and my choices and my decision rather than the worship of God. And the same goes for greed and filthy speech. You know, greed is about the heart, desiring something more than what God gives you. Filthy speech is self-centeredness because it is a way of gratifying your own sinful desires. They are all about what you want. And so in this, Paul vehemently commands us to not be deceived by it. As he gave the clause there too, you know, don't be deceived because those who persist in it, those who continuously live in it without regards, without repentance, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a warning, a warning for believers. If you choose to persist 
in your sin, without any remorse, any, any repentance, without seeking the Lord, if you choose to gratify your own desires and not God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is as clear as it is. And second, Paul tells us that to stay away from darkness requires us not only to be aware of our surroundings, but also to not become partners with it. He wants us to cut ties, to separate ourselves, to run away. You need to be aware of the darkness around you, but, so when, but and when it comes close to you to entice you of its false hope and satisfaction, you need to cut ties. You need to run. Paul uses similar terms in, in 2 Corinthians 6 to warn Christians from unequally yoked marital relationships with unbelievers. Why? Why does he warn them that? Because he said that they will lead you astray from God. But here's the thing, you know, there, there is a distinction that we need to understand between partnering and befriending unbelievers. Now, the Bible tells us to be salt and light of this world. We are active participants of this world, but we do not share the wickedness of this world. Now, just as we're able to befriend unbelievers, love them, care for them, we, however, are not to share or participate in their sins. You know, the world tells us today that to love people, to love is without restriction. You know, and to love someone is simply to embrace and accept everything about the person. But that is a lie. That is a lie. You can love someone without agreeing with everything they do. You can. You can love someone without accepting embracing their sins. You know, we practice this, this every day with our children. Now, how many of us simply just allow our children to do everything that they like? How many of us simply just allows our children to dictate their lives, to tell us that their way is the right way? Now, how many of us as parents, you know, have we ever stopped from correcting our children? Have we stopped from disagreeing with their choices. And we do so simply because we love them and not otherwise. And so to love someone, to love particularly an unbeliever, it doesn't mean that we have to participate in, in their sins. But rather we can love them well, we can honor them, we can respect them, we can care for them when they are unwell, and yet be able to stand above, to stand against their sin. And so that is, that's an important distinction that we need to understand what it means. You know, when Paul tells us to run away from darkness, to cut ties with darkness, we should never participate in darkness as children of the light. But yet we're called to live in the light. And that is an incredible, you know, statement. It's not, it's not an oxymoron, you know, where, you know, it's, it's actually hard to do, but at the same time it is possible with the help of the Lord. You are children of the light. Darkness is no longer in you, but yet you are called to live in this world full of darkness. You're called to shine your light in this world that is full of darkness. And third, Paul tells us, you know, 
to expose darkness to light. Now, previously, the first two commands, do not be deceived, do not become partners, seems to be more on a defensive end, right? Now, Paul wants us to go on an offensive stance. You know, he's, he doesn't only want us to play defense, but he wants us to play offense as well. You know, to actively expose darkness. To take darkness and bring it before the light. You know, Paul wants us to understand the power of the light. Don't just be afraid of darkness. No. Think about the light. Think about the power of the light and what it can do. I love this quote when I came across it recently. I don't remember who wrote it, but it says, No matter how hard you try to get rid of darkness, you can't because darkness doesn't exist. It is nothing but the absence of light. So in order to affect darkness, you need to do something with light. Light is the only thing that exists. Now think about what God did in the beginning, you know, in the creation of the world when, when there's, what, chaos and darkness. There was nothing there. There was nothing. And what God did was he brought something into it. He created light. He brought light into it to shine. And similarly, in this case, Paul said that, that the only way darkness can be defeated is by shining light on it. You know, light exposes darkness and makes things clear. You think about the darkest room that you've ever been. You know, you think about the surroundings that you are in. Maybe you're in the woods or maybe you're in this completely pitch black dark room. But even a tiny light that you have, a light from a matchstick or, or, or you know, a light from your phone, it is enough to brighten the path. It's enough to reveal the room or the, the surrounding of your area. Even the smallest light is enough to shine through darkness, to overcome darkness. So what does that tell us? It tells us that there is power in the light. Light exposes darkness and makes all things clear. The more you see the light of God, the more you recognize the darkness of sin. God's light exposed how heinous our sins are, how disruptive, how deceptive, how unfulfilling. Because whatever things that we worship, that we worship, money, sex, alcohol, power, these are all cheap substitutes, all false idols. These are all trinkets in comparison to this great gift that God has given to you. And so those who live in darkness often want to live in, 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 want to hide, want to cover themselves from their sins. But yet God is telling us, bring your sins before the light. Let light shine into your sin. And as His light shines on our sin, it not only reveals our sin, right? But it also transforms us. Light not only reveals, but it also transforms. And that's something that we need to understand. It helps us to not only know of our failures, of our sins, but light actually shows us the way to go, that there's a path for us. And that is what Paul is telling us. Bring your sins before the, the light. Bring your darkness before the light so that you will not only recognize your sin, but you also will recognize the way to go. You know, in God's light, 
there's a path for us. There's forgiveness. There's grace for our sins. There's strength and power to overcome our struggles. God's light made it possible for us to see His goodness, His grace, His love, and His absolute power to overcome our sins in this world. Therefore, Paul invites us to wake up. As he says here, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up from your slumber. Wake up and see the light that is around you, but see the light that is in you. Take to him all your struggles, the sins, the small sins, the big sins, the habitual sins. And when we do that, he would lead us in a path of righteousness and truth. Because only Jesus can defeat your sins and your temptations. And he calls us to take it to him. And he will show you how. And so as we learn to walk as children of the light, the first thing that Paul says is to stay away from darkness. But here comes the second thing. We live... We learn to live as children of light, not only by staying away from darkness, but also by living in the light. How do we live in the light? Paul gives us two, two, uh, two uh, points here. Live in the light by living in the wisdom of God and living in the spirit of God. You know, how does wisdom of God look like? Paul says, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Paul understands our fallen world and the temptation it brings. He wants us to live wisely because we are salt and light in this world. And so how you live presently matters. Now as Christians, we live in the already and the not yet, which basically means that, that you know, in one hand, we live in God's kingdom when we become believers, that this world is God's kingdom. But at the same time, you know, it is still not fully completed yet because Jesus is coming back. So Christians live in the already and not yet. And this should help to protect us from being overly cynical and even from being overly triumphalistic because we know that we are not fully home yet. Right? So we know that we cannot change everything that is wrong in this world. It doesn't mean that we should give up and withdraw from the world because God cares for this world still. God cares for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. And he calls us to do the same and seek to help even if it means that we may never be able to fully see changes in everything. And so we fight for justice, for equality, for equity because we have hope that one day God will overcome and right all the wrongs of this world. And so Paul's words, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Paul's words is both a warning to abstain from evil, but also a reminder of our responsibility as light to fight evil while we live presently and wait for the return of the Lord. So living in wisdom also means understanding the Lord's will. You know, I know that we all want to know God's will for our lives in all the decisions that we make, right? You know, what is God's will for me? Whether to go to UNC, you ought to go to Duke. Right? You don't have to ask God. You just have to ask your parents. They'll probably tell you that. Right? Oh, what is God's will for me, you know, to take this job or not that job? We all want to know God's will for our family, 
for our friends, for our job situation, for everything. Now, the good thing is that the will of God is not something abstract, you know, something that, that's an idea out there, you know, that it's not really a reality. But no, the will of God is a reality. You know, in the past, God's people could only know His will when He speaks to them verbally. But today, His will has been made known to us. Everything that we need to know about how to live and understand God's will has been written down for us in the Bible. The Bible is God's will. Yes, God does not give us specific instructions about what college we go to, what jobs to take. He does not give us every detail. But what the Bible has given us is God's wisdom and understanding to take all the principles that is in it, to take these principles, these laws, to help us apply it in our daily situation so that we can live out His will. This means, and this is what it means, that you can take all of God's principles, all of God's laws, how we understand greed, how we understand humility, how we understand love, how we understand, you know, um, uh, sin. Take all these principles and apply it in the decisions that you make each day. And this is how you live the will of God. This is how do you live the will of God. God has given you this, these principles so that you can make decisions, make right decisions to live in the will of God. So it doesn't matter what college that you go to. It doesn't matter what jobs you take. If you understand the motivation that you're doing it and that you understand that, what, that whatever choices that you're making, that you're not sinning, then you are living in the will of God. That is what the will of God is. And Paul is telling us, live in this wisdom by living in God's will. Understand the God's will that is in the Bible. Take those principles and apply it in your lives. And you will live in the will of God. And so living in light is living in wisdom. There's also another point here that Paul talks about. Living in light it's also living in the Spirit of God. You know, again, this is not something abstract or something that we have to figure out. You know, some people think that living in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit means that you have to speak a different language or you must perform miracles. But that is not a case. You know, I love the explanation from James Boyce in his commentary. He said that being filled with the Spirit is something that is urged upon Christian, which is what Paul does here. But it does not concern any special miraculous gifts. Rather, it refers to our being so under the Holy Spirit's control and leading that, that our thought and life are entirely taken up with Jesus Christ to whom is the Spirit's chief responsibility to bear witness. Now we see this in Acts. Every time a person is said to be filled with the Spirit, he or she begin to bear the testimony about the greatness of God. Being in spirit basically helps each person to be so in tune with God that all he can do is to bear the greatness and the goodness of God. And Paul here is giving us tangible examples of what it means to live in the spirit with the ultimate goal of exalting God in Christ and to make him known. And the first example Paul gives us 
here is in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for it is debauchery, but fill, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul's example here feels kind of bizarre and disconnected, right? How do you connect, don't get drunk, to be filled with the Spirit? I believe what Paul is trying to, to contrast here is to contrast drunkenness to the spirit of self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, drunkenness is a sin, like gluttony, because it exhibits a spirit of losing control. When we get drunk, we actually lose control of ourselves. Now, think about how many times we've witnessed people do reckless things when they're drunk. Such a person is not one who lives in the Spirit, because the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so drunkenness is contrast to the Spirit, to God's Spirit, because drunkenness is the spirit of losing control. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is all about self-control. It helps us to live under the influence of God. So what Paul is telling us is one example of living in the Spirit is living in a life that is self-control that living under the influence of God. You know, the Spirit helps us to practice moderation in what we do, what we eat, what we drink, so that we do not lose control and fall into addictions. Another example of living in the Spirit is living in worship. Paul exhorts us to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord. One who is filled with the Spirit, sought to worship and praise God. They do so on their own, but also they do it together as a body of believers, like what we're doing right now. You know, however, what is interesting is that worship clearly has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. When we gather together to sing and worship, we direct our worship to God right? But at the same time, Paul also speaks of an element of singing here that when we worship together, we also worship and sing to each other. We sing as a body to each other. You know, Bill O'Brien said that, that Paul is not teaching two different responses to singing, to one another and to God, but rather he is describing the same activity from different perspectives. Just as we worship to bring praise and glory to God, we also worship to bring edification, encouragement to each other. You know, there's an element of encouragement when we see each other in worship, when we see the emotions of each other, you know, when we worship God, when we sing, when we pray. These are ways that encourage us, encourage our soul. And that is why corporate worship is so important. You know, the last 15 months, we've been worshiping in so many different forms and ways that I have lost count. And we've done great with technology. We have been able to utilize technology so much in, in our worship, being able to incorporate it because we needed that. But yet something clearly was missing. Being able to worship together, sitting together is missing. And I'm not saying this as a way to, to guilt trip you or in any way. If those of you who are not able to come because of, of, you know, health situations. But I'm simply saying that how I miss worshiping together. You know, how? Just this 
past two weeks when we weren't able to worship together, when we have to sit at home and watch our computer, watch our screen. It is so different than being able to sit together, being able to see each other's response, being able to, to sit next to each other, worshiping together, singing, praying, listening. These are ways that Paul says that it had, that is one of the elements of, of corporate worship. It's an encouragement to our souls. As we praise God together, as we worship God together, as we sing to God, we also sing to each other. And this is something rich and beautiful that Paul describes here. And this is what it means also as we come together in worship, to live in the Spirit. And then the third example, Paul says, to live in the Spirit is living in the Spirit of gratitude. Now, gratitude is a heart of thanksgiving, a natural outflow that comes from experiencing God's grace and goodness. But sadly, we live in a culture today that I believe that has lost a lot the spirit of gratitude because we're so consumed with hatred, bitterness, anger, and self-righteousness. Now, as Christians, we have a lot to be thankful for, but sometimes we ourselves are surrounded by the toxicity of our culture that we too succumb to bitterness, to complaints, to anger. You know, Paul talks about rejoicing and being thankful in all seasons, as he, he said this to the Thessalonians. Be, rejoice and be thankful in all seasons, including seasons of sufferings and trials. And you're asking yourself, how in the world is that possible? How can I show gratitude in suffering, in trials? Well, Paul is simply not telling us to be ignorant or to forget our problems. But he wants to encourage us because gratitude helps us to focus, to take the focus off of ourselves and to, put the, and to put the focus on God. Gratitude doesn't mean we believe all our situation is perfect and that we're thankful for everything. We're thankful for all the problems in our lives. That's not gratitude. No, gratitude means that we should always be happy about all the tough situation that we're in. No, gratitude simply means that, that, that even when things are tough, even when we don't have answers for everything, even when we can't change our circumstances, we can trust in our God who knows all things, who sees all things, who already has an answer to deal with all our sufferings and pain. That is what gratitude points us to. It points us to God, knowing that we cannot fix ourselves, but God can. And we're thankful for God. And lastly, final example. Paul reminds us to live in spirit. It's to live in submission. Now, the context here is the church, but Paul will use the same principle later to apply to all forms of relationships. And naturally, I get it, this may be hard for us to swallow, right? It's not easy to live in humility and submission, but the Spirit enables us to do that. There's a great quote from John Stott. I love it. He says, the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, and those who are truly filled with Him always displays the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, all who follows Christ will 
always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And it's one of the most evident characteristics that, that they submit to one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not have leaders or any form of, of hierarchy in, in the church. No. You see, even Christian leaders who are called to rule and lead are called to submit. They're called to submit by serving others. You see, serving others is a form of submission. Serving yourself is different, right? But serving others is a form of submission. And even Christian leaders are called to submit to one another by serving each other. And the reason for our submission to each other, as Paul said, is out of reverence for Christ's authority over our lives. Jesus died for his people, the church, and he calls them to live in unity. But there can be no unity if his people do not live in humility. There can be no unity in a church if people do not learn to live in, un in humility. And so when we live in humility, we learn to demonstrate love and care for each other. We learn to disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. But here's another point too. There's an even richer meaning to our submission for each other. As we look here, you know, Brian Chappell perfectly noted this point when he said that when we perceive the Spirit of God as present in His children, in Christians, in all of us as believers, then submitting to each other is submitting to Christ in them. So when we submit ourselves for the good of others, by the Spirit of Christ in us, we do not merely reflect the glory of the Son. We become the glory of the Son to them. And what this means is that we, when we submit to each other, we are submitting to each other because Christ rules over us, but we have Christ's Spirit in us. So we are Christ to each other when we submit to each other. So when we look at each other, we're seeing Christ in us. And that is why we're called to submit. We're called to care for each other. We're called to disadvantage ourselves for each other. Because the other person that we're seeing is Christ in them. And so when we learn to see Christ in each other, it makes it easier for us to learn to submit to each other as Christ calls us to submit to him. And so here, Paul, you know, has given us a ton of instructions how to avoid darkness, how to stay away from darkness, how to live in the light. And these are all great examples. These are all great instructions. But at the same time, in order for us to truly follow and obey, we have to learn to anchor ourselves in Christ, first of all. We have to, first of all, understand our identity, as I have just said. The how to live is important. But the only way that you can learn how to live is by knowing why, knowing the reasons behind us. This will help anchor you. This will help motivate you. And this will help you keep the right perspective when you live when you walk as children of light. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for your words, Lord. I know that there are many instructions here that may seem a little hard for us to, to accept sometimes, but I pray, Lord, to your spirit 
to the light in us, Lord, I pray that we will see the goodness of your instructions, of your laws, that we will understand that as children of the light, we are no longer living in darkness, but we live in light. And we're called to continue to live in light, to fight for against darkness, and to pursue righteousness, to pursue truth. And so help us even as, as we think about our own struggles, our own sins today. Well, the one thing that you call us to do is to bring our sins before you, bring our sins before the light, so that the light of God can shine and to reveal how ugly, how sinful, how corrupted, how unsatisfying our sins are, but at the same time revealing to us how beautiful, how lovely, how wonderful Christ is, and that his, and how amazing His grace is for us. So I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to do so. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.